We are up to 294 of Conversations with Yogananda. We might get past 294 tonight, but I'm not sure. In God, the ma- this is reading now. In God, the Master said, everything goes on in the present tense. It is like a movie which can be turned backwards or forwards. The action on the screen may cover centuries, but all the while up in the projection booth, it happens now. The secret of life is to learn to live fully aware of present bliss. When you can learn to be happy in the present, you have God. It's a very strong statement. I remarked, very few live in the present. Isn't that so? That's true, Master replied. Most people live in the past with nostalgia or regrets or in the future with hopes and fears born of desire. So, the first part of that is the secret of life is to learn to live fully aware of present bliss when you can learn to be happy in the present, you have God. I, I, whatever I read a statement like that of Master's, just a moment, I have to see if I'm going to sneeze. No, I'm not. Whenever I read a statement like that of Master's, I think how completely simple the path gets. If you can be happy in the present, you have God. I mean, you, you think of something completely other than that. But if you can be aware of present bliss, if you can be happy in the present... That's really what all of the philosophy comes down to because you have to disidentify to such a strong extent with your ego in order to do that. Because the ego is always shifting and always is oscillating. So I was talking about last week was oscillation. When we issued the movie Finding Happiness for the first time a few years ago, we're relaunching it again now, um, Shivani, who was the producer of the movie, had the idea that we would do seminars on finding happiness. And uh, so I was the um, test cadet, you know, sort of went out to do seminars on finding happiness. And I picked it up from what to my mind was a fascinating string, but it wasn't at all what Shivani had in mind. I, I picked it up, I started, I started with the concept of time, because to me, happiness seemed to be all about your relationship to time based on this. And I, it's, it's on the, for those of you who look at the YouTube channel, it's on the YouTube channel, Finding Happiness, San Francisco, 2015 maybe, 2014? Maybe it was, it was before 2015, it was 2014 or 2013. And it was called Finding Happiness and I did it in San Francisco and it was a marvelous seminar. And I, I, I know that I did, time was the most important. I also did it in Dallas, Texas. That's where it was. It was the one in Dallas that was the really good one. San Francisco was also good. Um, I'm going to come back to why this matters. There were four other points, but I don't remember them. I can't recall them in this moment. But uh, it was not at all what Shivani had in mind. It was just way outside the box. But in this context, I don't have my chart in front of me. My chart is very simple. Um, I, I, could never under, I could never understand the simultaneity of past, present, and future and, and the singularity of superconsciousness. This was based on Swami's talking about when he was a child, 
he used to fall asleep by merging into the light. I mean, I think this is like from when he was a baby. And he would, always, he would when, he, when he would go to sleep, he would see a, a big light here at the spiritual eye, and that light would expand and expand until, it, until he merged into it. And that was how he would go to sleep. And it was quite some time before he found out that that wasn't how everyone goes to sleep. Um, and so he tells that story. He, he gives it a sentence or two in the path. It just kind of, um, he just goes by it, but it's an interesting sentence or two. And then in another context, he said, after he met Master and took Kriya and went into superconsciousness, Swami rarely would speak of his own state of consciousness, but he did in that particular time, and went into superconsciousness. I recognized it immediately as the state I used to enter effortlessly as a child. And then he added, and it was the same moment, because in superconsciousness there is no time, which is really a fascinating idea. And then Swamiji used to try to explain to us, he, he, you know, he dedicated himself, of course, to teaching, so he would he was constantly trying to come up with images and explanations for that which was beyond normal thinking to try to help us to understand. So he would give us, he told this thing many times, and even now I still, I still don't get it. He would, he would try to have us visualize a planet in which there, nothing grows, nothing moves, and he tried to explain to us that if there's no movement, there's no time. And I know this was crystal clear to Swamiji because every time he would explain it, and the first time he explained it, he was so excited, he thought it was so marvelous and absolute a blank for me. I, I've never been good at visualizing spatial relationships. I must have heard him do it at least ten times. I still don't get it. It doesn't tell me about time. Maybe it tells you about time, but it doesn't tell me anything about time. But this idea of it being the same moment in superconsciousness, this is the picture I got. It's very simple. You have a circle, just a, a basic circle, and then you have a, a dot in the center. Past, present, and future are a moving energy around the edge of the circle. Wherever we are, if you think of it, you know, you go backwards in the circle and you go into your past, you go forwards in the circle and you go toward your future. When you're on the rim, depending how, how, how small you are, if it's a very narrow rim and you're right on that rim, you, you can't see very far forward and you can't see very far back because you're, you're in the line, you've got your blinders on. If that's how wide your consciousness is and the line of time is the same width of, as your blinders, then you can look back and remember a little bit about the past, but you don't remember your babyhood or your childhood and even any of us, what did you have for dinner last Tuesday night? Who were you talking to? Or were you alone, you know, at 10 this morning? At 11.15, what were you doing today? I mean, we might be able to conjure some of it, if just by chance, but so much of it is a blur. Did I say that to him, or did he say that to me? You know, memory reverses itself, and on and on and on. And in the future... We may know that tomorrow morning I'm going to get up and these are my plans and I have a date for lunch and then I'm going to go to my grandmother's house at the end of next week and I can remember my grandmother's house and, you know, we can anticipate a little, but if the line of time is, if our, if our awareness is the same width as the line of time, our vision is very small. Now, 
arrayed as we are like this, if superconsciousness is the center, and as, as our awareness begins to expand, we're expanding from extremely limited awareness, we're moving towards superconsciousness. If you think of it as the spokes of a wheel, is one way to think about it. On our own little individual trajectory, we start riding that spoke. Now, if the band of time is this wide, and we move up the spoke a couple of inches, all of a sudden you have a triangular view of the past and the present, don't you? Because you're not quite so locked in. Your blinders have expanded, and now you can see like this. So you can anticipate the future. Now, that doesn't mean you can prophesize the future, but the relationship between the present and the future becomes more obvious to you, which is what where you begin to understand karma, and you begin to understand cause and effect, and you begin to understand that the things that happened to me may not be as random as I think they are. When we first took over the apartment complex where our community is now, we, uh, uh, it, was, it was bought by investors, and then the community leased it, and it was fully occupied. And we gradually took over apartments as they emptied, and then people saw the handwriting in the wall and moved out, and in one or two cases we had to ask people to leave. It was not a very, well, let me phrase it differently. The police had to visit the complex usually several times a week, and the neighbors were very glad when we came because it was a, it was a rowdy place. It was not a place where people followed the rules a lot. Um, it wasn't really terrible, but it was a little on the edge of society. Well, uh, when, uh, soon after I had moved in, and I had an apartment that bordered on, it was in, for those of you who know, it was in, this, in building number two, and it bordered on the driveway there. Saturday morning, and the, the bedrooms are right there on the driveway, like 12 feet from the driveway. Saturday morning, uh, one of the tenants pulls his car up, so he's 10 feet outside my bedroom window. He is going to work on his car. It was, I believe it was 6.30 in the morning. He turns on the radio, just full loud radio, to work on his car. It's like there's a whole building of people here, and it's Saturday morning, and it's 6.30. And it was like, doesn't he know? You know, doesn't he know that he, if he disregards our feelings then the consequence of that is that somebody's going to disregard his. But if, you're, if you have blinders on, when that happens, it's going to be a completely independent event from the energy that you set in motion that causes this to happen. People who live there, the, the balconies of the second floor um, uh, single units <clears throat> are above the gardens of the under tenants. There were actually tenants who just would throw their, like newspaper, when they finished it, they would throw it over the balcony. Yeah. And people walking across the grass, you know, the grass was always littered, you know, with candy wrappers and just things. People would just drop trash just anywhere without, because their concept of future and past was so narrow that they didn't understand that throwing a newspaper over the edge, it landed on your neighbor. Or maybe they didn't like their neighbor, maybe it was more deliberate. But then, you know, new neighbors would come in, and suddenly you're, there's a newspaper, and everybody going back and forth across the lawn would just fill, we would. We started filling our pockets with all the trash. But as soon as you're standing here, oh, this action, because you can see it continuously, causes this to happen. And oh, this moment is because of that. 
It, it's, it's very obvious. And we take it for granted. I mean, people who are introspective and thoughtful. But you have to have a bigger perspective of time in order to see that. Because even instant karma, unless you're aware, you won't realize that it's instant karma. <clears throat> instant karma is good karma if you're a conscious person. Because if you can tell what you just did to cause it, then it's much less confusing. You all have heard me talk about the time I was <clears throat> accosted by a monkey in a temple in India, and I was thinking very bad thoughts at that moment. And another time in Israel, I mean, another time when I was in Israel, we were walking on this ridge uh, in the desert area, and I had started getting annoyed about something that was going on. I don't remember, well, I vaguely remember, but it wasn't important. But I was thinking very, I wasn't thinking happy thoughts. I was not thinking happy thoughts. I was not my best self. I was being really unpleasant. And I have um, unpredictable intermittent vertigo, which sometimes I'm completely comfortable and then sometimes I'm not. So this pathway was at least a yard wide, and it was a bit of a cliff, but it, was, it, was a, it wasn't even slightly dangerous. And I was walking along perfectly well, but I was being really crummy in my mind. And all of a sudden, the path made a turn like that. And, I mean, there was no question about the fact that the path continued around the corner, but I couldn't see it, and I panicked. I just absolutely panicked. And, you know, there was a whole group were coming like this. I made a U-turn. I started pushing my way back through the whole group in a state of complete panic until I ran into the tour guide, who was a very strong man, and like all Israelis, he'd been in the army, and he was a very strong fellow, and I could still feel it. He grabbed my hand like this. He had such a strong hand, and he was so solid that it, it, it stopped me. And then I held his hand, and we went around that curve. But there was no question, absolutely no question in my mind, that the panic came because of the negative thinking. It was just like you, if you're, you know, you act bad, bad things happen. You know, what did you think, girl? Did you think you were just going to be able to think like that and nothing would happen to you? I mean, they looked unrelated, but they weren't. I knew it just like that. Instant karma is good karma because even if your memory is short, <laughs> you'll get that one. Bingo, just like that. So the more we move towards superconscious, then that's the point at which people can talk to us about karma. And it begins to make sense. They can start talking to us about mind-body connection, about health and thought. I loved this. I loved in a, can you believe it, sort of way. I saw some snippet of a documentary in which uh, they were going to decide whether or not there was a man-body, mind-body connection by interviewing a lot of sick people and asking them. <laughs> um, Swamiji said something that I just recently read. He said it a long time ago, but I recently read it. And it's so, it was so predictive of the present moment. He said this about 30 years ago. Because Americans believe so much in democracy, we've gotten in the habit of determining truth by a majority vote. And because, of course, truth cannot be determined by a majority vote, Americans have gradually lost respect for truth itself. Is that just, it's so profound the way Swami puts it. Well, um, oh yes, here I am. So they're going to decide whether there's a mind-body connection by interviewing people who are sick. And so they go into some hotel room where some woman has cancer, and they ask her whether they, she thinks in any way her thoughts have influenced her disease. I loved her response. 
Hell no, she said. Bad enough that I have cancer. I'm sure as hell not going to be responsible for it too. <laughs> well, one vote against it, you know. <laughs> That's just how people feel. <laughs> so if you're there, you know, you don't have any perspective. You don't know why things happen to you. They just happen. If you're here and you can see how many people have been sick and you've noticed, you, know, you, just, you can see how it works. So people start talking to you about karma and you believe it. People start talking to you about you can influence your own life and you can anticipate the future and you can remember the past. So the farther you move up your little spoke towards superconsciousness, the greater your dimension will be, won't it? So that you be, can, could conceivably remember past lives. You could be able to become prophetic whether you actually have those powers or not is less important than you can see. And even if you don't have prophetic or unusual experiences, you live in a world in which the past and the future are more part of your present reality. Isn't that so? I don't have any prophetic powers, but all my past lives are, are part of my present life. I, I can feel that they are. You know, it's not anything that you could make a big story about. But when I talk, for example, about the life of Jesus, I just, I can see it. It's, it's so much more than just enthusiasm. It's like I know that story. I really feel, and I, no one's ever verified it, and how do I know? But it just feels so much more than just something I read in a book. How close I was, I don't, it's not like I felt like I was sitting at the last supper table or something like that. I was probably more like one of those who said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. <laughs> but at least I did that much. I can see him going through the streets of Jerusalem like that. It's just there. And, 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 and. You all, you all can fill that in. And the future is not known to me, but it's familiar. It's like, it's, I know it's going to be a natural extension of the present. It's not a mystery. Everything that's happening now is just going to continue to unfold. Why wouldn't it? But if you follow the spoke and you get all the way to the center of it, okay, everything that's happened, past, present, and future, is equidistant from where you're standing, isn't it? You know, if, if the farther you are over here, you are in closer relationship to where your body has incarnated at this particular time. But even if your body has incarnated here and your consciousness has moved to superconsciousness, you are at the center. And everything is moving around you, but the center is, is still. It's just, it's just the point. And that's how Swami said, as a child he moved to that point, and as a grown man he moved to that point. But when it all came back to exactly that point, it w there was just one point. So it had to be the same point. And he was equidistant to all time. So it was the same moment. No moments had passed. Isn't that a fascinating way to think about it? And I love it when, I mean, now I'm being just like Swami, except I never got anything out of his unmoving planet. I could never get it. But for me, at least, it was like, at least on a sort of theoretical basis, oh, I see how it happens. And how the dissolution of time isn't something, I mean, it, it could be, but it hasn't been my experience. You know, if you, if you were flung into superconsciousness in some way, then it would be a sudden realization. But also, as we grow toward it, this is what Swamiji said about 
spiritual growth altogether. He said, it's not as if you're at the bottom of the mountain and then you're at the top. You just move up the mountain. And as you move, you know, more and more of the mountain and the valley becomes visible to you. And you you just gradually ascend to the peak. And your consciousness expands little by little. Now, is there a moment of when it really flips? (laughs) I think it's more just you become, you you come into a state of greater and greater awareness. I really can't say more because I just don't know. So, when Master's talking about when you can have God in the present moment, I mean, if you can be happy and live only in the present, of course, when we're, the closer we are to the side here, the more we're subject to all that movement. Even if we have a broader perspective, some pieces of it are going to gradually if you might say, move away from us, if you think of your little piece of the pie shifting, you know, more and more into the future, your relationship to events is going to change. But the closer you are to the center, the less it changes, because the more you see simultaneously. This is the projector. Of course, there are no projectors anymore, but there used to be projectors. I'm old enough to remember sitting in the movie theater and watching the beam of light, watching the dust motes in the beam of light. And every so often the film would burn and you'd watch the movie sort of catch fire. <laughs> it, was just, just, it was just like all the images would melt every so often when the projector misfired. Um, <clears throat> but, but that master uses that image a lot. Here's the film and it's just nothing but a beam of light coming through it. But it looks very real to you. But when you look back, you see it's just the beam of light through it. And it just rolls. And you could see how standing at superconsciousness You're just watching the the light move through that. You go backwards and forwards in time. Your life review sounds a little bit like that, but you would have to be very more advanced. When when when, uh, Dr. Ritchie talked about his life review, he stood in the middle of a 360-degree movie in which all the events of his life were having, of this incarnation, were happening simultaneously. He was being born over here, and he was inducted into the army here, and then he died here. But it was all simultaneous. And he speaks of a similar thing, which is that he was in equal relationship to all of it. And, and he didn't like what he saw very much. He, he felt that he hadn't lived very well. But, and he also saw that the relative importance of it was entirely different than he'd seen. He just was standing from a different point of view. He was in a superconscious state in terms of this one incarnation. So again, when Master says, if you can be entirely in the present, that means you've moved much closer to the unmoving point. And to being in the, being in the present isn't just, you know, you're only in this moment, you don't know what moment is coming next, because we're rational beings, and as Sri Yukteswar said, spirituality is not dumbness. You know, we don't get stupid because we become more advanced. But, but the feeling would be that nothing is really changing because I'm just watching this movie. And so what he says is, if you can be conscious of your present bliss, and your present bliss would be dependent on how close you are to the center and how big your perspective is. Just like that. Isn't, it's a very interesting way to think about it. It's an extremely important. And that's where, you know, there's one of the many ways that one handles disappointment and suffering is that you just move back a little bit. Master says somewhere that no matter what it feels like when it's going on, if somebody makes a movie of your life afterwards, it'll last about 90 minutes. <laughs> Haridas was fond of saying, you know, 
even though this seems like a tough part of my life, I think in the movie it's going to get about maybe 27 seconds, he says. <laughs> so you think, well, I'll already be in the movie. And so this feels like a big experience, but it'll be 27 seconds in the whole movie when it's finally done. And see how different? You can become more conscious of your present bliss and have God in the moment, depending how close you are to the rim compared to how close you are in the center. But the other last point about this is it doesn't change the way these events unfold because the karma can still push it. And you can watch, oh, well, here comes some heavy karma from some things I did in the past. Oh, look, this is a nice period when everything goes really well. Oh, dear, cliff ahead. You know, you can just watch all of it happen. And so it doesn't change it, but you're watching it from the point of view of present bliss or as close to it as we can get. Fun? Comments, questions, thoughts? When I was trying to explain to people how to find happiness, that seemed like a very essential point. It was a tiny bit advanced for what Giovanni had in mind, but she was thinking more on the line of, you know, what do you enjoy doing? What do you not like? What's positive in your life? (laughs) We were just thinking different realities. Okay? All right. Now, now going on with this, but then so he said, when you can learn to be happy in the present, he just says, when you can be happy in the present, he says two things, to be, live fully aware of present bliss, and then he modifies it, when you can learn to be happy in the present, you have God. Fight the battle for joy right where you're standing. Take care of the minutes and the incarnations will take care of themselves. These are extremely important points, because otherwise we get so complicated. Why is this happening? I wonder why this is happening. Maybe it's because of this, and I wonder what's happening there, and what does this really mean? And all he says is, just be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Mayor Baba, who was a teacher from whenever, um, he had a huge poster on the side of the building, sort of just as you enter the city of San Francisco, big picture of his very smiley face, and it said, don't worry, be happy. That was his expression. And whenever we would drive to the city, he would always, sort of just before you entered the really urban area, he would say, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> okay. Yes, Nish Years ago, there was a very um, well-read magazine, a humor magazine called Mad Magazine, and the uh, iconic character was a guy named Alfred E. Newman. <clears throat> and uh, his catch word was, what, me worry? That's right, what? me worry, yeah. I remember, yeah. <laughs> I've actually thought possibly I'd put that on the wall of my apartment, but I haven't dared to yet. <laughs> it's part of my childhood too, I remember it. So then Swami answers, but very few people live in the present, isn't that so? And then he says, oh yes, Master says, most people live in the past with nostalgia or regret and in the future with hopes and fears. And those four words seem like they're worth a little energy, don't you think? That was when I asked Swamiji uh, what causes us to reincarnate. Well, I didn't ask him that, but that's the question he answered. Longing and regret were the two words he used. And longing and regret, nostalgia is a sort of form of longing. It's so... um, Swamiji talks about before he met Master, when he, when he thought that maybe the problem with his life was that he was too citified and too distant from the natural world, and he went out to live in the country and decided that maybe that would be what he needed. 
But he discovered that even when he was in a beautiful natural setting, his capacity to enjoy and experience it was completely limited by his capacity to enjoy and experience. And, and, and what he felt was that his own consciousness, he, he could observe, he could observe, but he, he couldn't absorb in the way he desired. I mean, what he was articulating is a, a concept that came to me later after I got into the spiritual path because I always felt Unhappy is not really the right word because I wasn't a depressed person in any way. But there was always something slightly wrong with life. Just something was wrong with it and I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with it. But after I got into the spiritual path and got the right vocabulary, I actually realized that what I felt was confined. And I wasn't confined by circumstances, I was confined by my consciousness. I just, I knew that my consciousness was limited. I didn't know any of those words at all. But when I had words, I could look back and I could identify the feeling. I, j- I felt so limited that, that, that even when good things happened, one's, even one's ability to enjoy them was just limited. It was limited by nostalgia, regret, hopes and fears, really. Those four words are what actually do really always limit us. Because we're, we're just caught in, I was, uh, I've been advocating for us to have Easter service outside this year rather than have it in the temple because the weather report looks good and it seems possible. And for various reasons, because it's not really my decision, it's not like anybody else doesn't want to have it outside, but I haven't gotten the assurance that I'm looking for that I, it will be outside. And I finally just had to realize that For some reason, for many years, it's been many years since the weather's been good enough. And I have this great nostalgia for Easter Sunday outside on our community lawn. And just when I finally actually put it into words, I just realized that it was warping my judgment. It was making me fearful of the future because I feared that somebody would make the wrong decision and it would be a beautiful sunny day and we'd be trapped inside because I have all this nostalgia for this beautiful, sunny Easter outside. And, and I, could just, I just realized, watching, reading this, how those two forces were keeping me unaware of the bliss of the present moment and causing me to do things that were not as considerate as they might have been. Because once you get compelled, you're, you start oscillating between, in this case, nostalgia and fear, I mean, the, incident, the event itself, it, it doesn't loom that large in my mental sky, which is often the times that you can really tell what's happening. Because if it's really important to you, it's often difficult to be able to objectify your responses because they're too deep-seated, there's too much that one is protecting. So it's, this is the same principle as you know, if you really want to be in tune in a moment of crisis, you have to practice when it's easier. When, when there's less at stake, it's easier to have the courage to trust God. When there's a great deal at stake, if you haven't developed those muscles, it's harder to do it. And it's harder to hear divine guidance if it's the first time you're listening. But uh, that's the, a little bit of the story of the, 
the, the virgins who don't have any oil in their lamp. They're just carrying their lamps around, but they're not really keeping them full of devotion and eager expectation. And so when the bridegroom finally comes, they, they're not ready because they haven't been practicing the whole time. So for me, a lot of times I see patterns that are serious and deep, but I see them in trivial situations because there's not enough going on within me that, that blocks. I just sense, oh, something's a little funny. I wonder what's funny here. Okay, so there's a very per particular and exact example. Now, it's a little hard because Easter Sunday outside on the lawn really is beautiful. And it is more fun than having it inside the temple because it's spring and there's just all this and it's more fun for the children. I mean, I can say all these things. But when does it become longing for something as if that experience was essential to my happiness? And, and it, it really has been. The few Sundays we've scheduled Easter's here and the weather was really good enough, I've had to really discipline myself to enjoy it because my prejudice has been so strong. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I'm just talking about my own story, but you can give your own story to this. We get fixed on this is essential to my happiness and I won't be happy unless it happens this way. And we start becoming edgy. When, when at the end of the cycle of the school play this year, because of a whole lot of things that happened with the costumes, I, and then I started getting a cold right at the end. It was a perfect storm. I was, I was a, little out, a little outside of myself. Let's just put it like that. I wasn't as deeply centered as I prefer to be. But I watched how short my temper got. You know, just like, boom. And I just was saying, I was behaving in ways that I don't usually behave. I can have a short fuse, but I didn't have a fuse at all. <laughs> it was, and it was just, it was interesting to just watch myself. And, and it was, in, in that case, let's see what, it would be hopes and fears. It was a lot of hopes and fears. I hoped that things would come out a certain way. And then it, when they didn't look like they were going to, I became fearful and I tried to influence events. And then I regretted, you know? And all of this is making me not conscious of the present bliss. Because I'm worried about what I just said. And the reason I said it is because I was anxious about something that might happen. A mess, isn't it? Thank God for Kriya. But just those four words, you know, we're not in the present because we're nostalgic for the past. I mean, I have to be really careful having lived in this area for 30 years and, and in the last five or, t or so years, it's really begun to change. How many times have I been tempted to say and how many times do I try not to say? We used to be able to get to the church in just 10 minutes. Like, who cares, Right? It's like, what possible relevance does that have to anything? None of this used to be here. I mean, maybe if some of you are giving a historical tour, but it's not said like that. It's said out of nostalgia for a reality that is gone forever. And so, like, where do you go with that? Where is the future of that? I remember many, many years ago, I had a deep disappointment in my life, and I was very unhappy about it. But I realized, finally that it really didn't matter how unhappy I was about it. This was in my early 20s. It didn't make any difference how unhappy I was. I could be unhappy all the time. And it just, the universe didn't really care. 
these were the circumstances in which, I, in which I had to accept. It was just as simple as that. And I said to myself, if you weep over this, you will, you will cry, start crying now and you will never stop. Because what will be the end point? No, and, and it's nostalgia for a reality that was nice when it happened, but has now vaporized. And this is very, very hard because the heart just wants it to be a certain way. And this is, this is the, well, the only word for it is this is the actual tragedy of life, is that nothing stays. And it never quite works. I mean, it works with God. If you can be aware of the present bliss, it's fine. And then you go through all that heartbreak and, and success and fulfillment. You get all of it. But if you're aware of the present bliss, it just it's the movie that's playing in front of you. And you feel it. I mean, I'm a real, I'm a real sucker for the, you know, the emotional drama, Reader's Digest and Guidepost magazines and the smarmiest movies. They'll get me really easily. I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker, is the word I use, and I am. For, you know, they can manipulate my emotions easily. And I just find it all so... You know, so whatever you feel, it just feels so tender-hearted. You know, Master was very tender-hearted. Swamiji was very tender-hearted. It's a very, it's a very positive thing to be. It's not that you don't feel it, but if you're also aware of the present bliss and there's no nostalgia, there's no, there's no regret, there's no fear, and there's no hope. It just is what it is. Yeah, longing. What a, what a world we live in. Here we are. And this is what it is. And so we, you know, we may think it doesn't matter, but these are the small habits that we build up. Like, oh yeah, there used to not be as much traffic. I liked it better when it was like this. That used to be just a small store. I used to be able to go over there. Whatever it might be. I, you know, and, and some of it's just inevitable. I, I go to Ananda village on occasion. And now that the, they have the Moksha Mandir where Swami's body is buried, that's been very helpful. But when I would just go back to the Crystal Hermitage where he lived and where I had so many experiences there, it's, it's, it's too nostalgic for me. It's not, like, it's not something that I can just effortlessly do. In fact, if I walk in there without remembering, it kind of ambushes me emotionally. And, of course, the memories are glorious, but the nostalgia also wipes me out a little bit. You know, it, it just, I have, to, I have to really concentrate on the present bliss to not get completely wrapped up. And nostalgia is actually really the right word for it. It's my father's house. It's going back to your childhood home. Nostalgia for your childhood, in a sense, although I, my whole adult life was there too, but there's still, you understand what I'm trying to say. So it's not like it's, just negative things. Sometimes it's the most beautiful things in your life. But they're not, it's, it's the past and not the present. And if you live out of the present, there's, there's some things missing. Because it's, of course it's not there anymore. Unless you're standing in super consciousness and then you can see that it was always there. But then you're not nostalgic because you're not missing it. Very confusing. When I said to Swami, when he said longing and regret are causes to reincarnate, he actually gave me an interesting answer because I said, well, Swami, I could do the first 10 years at Ananda 
in a heartbeat. I'd love to redo those 10 years. I said, it was just heaven on earth. It was so much fun. And he actually said, oh, that's different. That, that was a, I think what he meant by that, I don't recall that he explained it. But I think it was more like a God remembrance rather than nostalgia. Just a sense of having had a very elevated spiritual experience. And, and, and pardon me? Well, and it's also your, it's what you're longing for when you're longing for that is you're actually longing for superconsciousness. I think that would be the answer, because that's how I, I did mean it. It wasn't like I wanted to be 24 uh, again, and I, you know, I wanted to have this experience and that, and I wanted to be, as one of my older friends said, I wanted to be slim, young, and beautiful again. <laughs> you know, just all those things that you're not after a certain point. One of my friends said that to me. I just had to face it. I'm just not going to be slim, young, and beautiful again in this lifetime. <laughs> And I've always thought about that. Yeah, just comes a point when you're not. What can you do? So it wasn't that kind of longing, which a person would long for. It was because it was so spiritually uplifted. And that kind of longing, you see, I presume this is what he was saying to me, is the longing for the dissolution of the ego. And the desire that leads to the end of all desires is not a desire in the same way. If, you just, if you're nostalgic, you just want to go back and have what you don't have anymore. You're rebelling against acceptance of the presence. present. Yes? Well, I really believe everything you're saying, but I guess maybe I'm not hearing. What can we do about this? Jnana, um, <clears throat> devotion, karma yoga, kriya, introspection, things. courage, self-discipline, Okay. Surrender to God, prayer, the whole spiritual the path. The whole thing. The whole spiritual path. Because this is, last week I talked about the oscillation of the heart. This is just a very specific, um, disc- these, these four words are a very specific way to describe how the heart oscillates. And you, you long for this, you re- and regret is the other. Is that, the, is that what he uses in here, longing? What does he say? Oh, yes. He says um, nostalgia or regrets. I mean, regrets is a whole nother, my gosh, is that ever a big one? I mean, how many of you? I certainly do. Ah, you know, if only. If only I could have been who I wasn't when I was, you know. If I could have been someone else, if I could have thought differently, if I wouldn't have been so outside myself, if I just wasn't so impatient. If I didn't have those two cups of coffee before I came in, I might have been more sensible. (laughs) When we used to have our temple, before we had this temple, when we were over on California Avenue upstairs in the office building, this was before there was a Starbucks on every corner, Raghu would chant for the Sunday morning service and he would often uh, stop somewhere on the way and have a big double mocha with coffee in it. And then he would come in and he would chant, Door up my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. Will come, will come. <laughs> Raghu, did you have coffee this morning before Sunday service? Yes, what made you notice that? <laughs> well, I just kind of got a feeling we were just a little up-tempo this morning. <laughs> if only, if only I hadn't done that. And even, I mean, profound. I mean, there's a man I know whose son died of a drug overdose. And the father felt something was wrong and kept driving by his house son was dying inside that house. But he never stopped. Now, talk about regret. He got the little 
he never stopped to see how his son was doing. He never followed that, and his son died. I mean, no, regret is not just, I wish I had been a little more patient. Regret can be stunning in terms of heartbreak. But that's what happens on this plane of consciousness, is we perceive these experiences, we don't see that every experience is just woven into the fabric. Later on, he talks about how Master saw it all as a flow. He didn't see it as individual points. So we see this point where this, this, this poor man's son died, and he had, had to live for the rest of his life with the regret of if only. But he doesn't understand how the trajectory of that soul had to go through that experience came from that experience and could not possibly continue his journey or continue his journey into superconsciousness without that moment in time, that he himself had to have that experience. I mean, all these, all these sound like great words, but they don't work very well when you're in the throes of something like that. It's very hard to feel present bliss. It's very hard to stand at the center and be equidistant from your son's God realization, which came from this incarnation when he died of a drug overdose. I mean, if you're not standing there, you don't feel it. So the challenge of this drives us to devotion to God. And that's what we have to understand. That's why it all happens. It all happens because it is unbearable. It's not nearly unbearable. It is unbearable. And so we are incapable of going on without divine assistance. You know, you, you, you literally, I mean, in the 12-step programs, which is a very nice microcosm for a great deal of life, you really don't change until you hit bottom. And they have a phrase for that. I mean, they have a, a whole system for you can't change an addict, whatever they're addicted to, until they have followed it all the way to the bottom. Because until they've gone to the bottom, they will always imagine that it's going to work out. And so we ourselves, we imagine that we can handle our lives. We can do it. I'm okay. I'm smart. I'm educated. I have money. Whatever, whatever we're saying. Until we can't. And wh- however that comes to you, and whenever that comes to you, that's actually a great point, even though we think of it as an awful point, because the experience of it can be so, so well, unbearable. But that's the point at which it occurs to you that I can't do this by myself. And so, is it really a bad thing that happens to us? Is it really bad that we get pushed to that point? Because that's the point at which our life actually begins, from the, the soul's point of view. But, unfortunately, as I was listening to Swami just say this today, everybody says, why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to suffer a lot? Swami just said, because it just seems that we don't, we don't turn to God as long as we think we have it together on our own. And it doesn't have to happen every incarnation. As Swami says, the soul remembers. He said sometimes even just the memory of that suffering turns us to God right away. Even That's how I felt about my life. There was no visible reason that I would be so avid to find a way out of the life I had. 
But I was desperate to find a way out of it, and there was nothing wrong with it. But I remembered. I was born remembering, without knowing what I was remembering. Okay, let's take a few minutes break, and then we'll go on with this. You know, there's two reactions to really looking um, at, at what we've been talking about, hopes, fears, nostalgia, and regret. Um, let me just try to find this for a second. Swamiji was such an interesting mix because he was so unsentimental about life. It was annoying, you know, because he just... Uh, He, he, he couldn't, uh, let me see what, how, what I'm really trying to say. He was just, he, he was very disciplined, but it wasn't the discipline of effort, it was the discipline of knowledge that there was no point in indulging nostalgia, there was no point in indulging false ideas. We just had to live by the truth, and the truth was simply what it was. At the same time, he was also very um, uh, affectionate toward his childhood, and, he, you know, he, he, he had happy memories of his youth, and he would, things that reminded him of his youth he liked, and he would remember them happily, and experiences with his mother, and, um, you know, so it wasn't like he was dry, you know, you could, you could think that, that there would be an austerity there, but there wasn't. I remember one Christmas, the woman who uh, was his housekeeper at that time, Karen, she was from um, the Tyrol in Europe, and so she set up a Christmas tree in the Austrian manor with real candles. And I just remember how much Swami enjoyed that. And every year at Easter, um, Lakshmi would make him this certain kind of Easter bread that I think he'd had in Romania when he was growing up. And uh, just, you know, things like that. And he, and he really liked those things. He wasn't, uh, he was being gracious, but he also genuinely enjoyed them. So it wasn't like he wasn't able to enjoy things that had a positive association from the past and so on like that. And I remember him talking about in Romania, he always loved cherries as a fruit. And he said when he was growing up in Romania, there were two cherry trees in the backyard of his house when he lived in Teliagin. And one was a yellow cherry tree and one was a red cherry tree. And he said when the fruit was ripe, he would climb up in one tree and he would eat cherries until he was sick. And then the next day he would go up into the other tree and he would eat cherries <laughs> until he was sick. But I remember just how happily he remembered that. You know, it was just, it was just such a sweet childhood thought of his that that was, that was how they did it. Now, the, the end point of that was, but at the same time, I know this is the word I'm looking for, he had absolutely no illusions about life. He didn't allow his own happiness and his own affection and his own good friends and all of that. He never allowed that to cross over into having any illusions. He just always knew that God was the only answer. And that even though we had these beautiful friendships and this beautiful life together, and none of that was ever less important to him. He appreciated it and respected it and enjoyed it 
in many ways more than any of the rest of us. Um, but he still, it, he never allowed it to pass over into imagining that this world was really his home. Whereas I've, I myself, as I've matured on the spiritual path, really I would say in the last 12-year cycle that I've been through, I've, I've really finally had to actually accept that I've carried a lot of illusions about life. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to say that I had, but from 60 to 72, which is what I'm just almost finished with, not quite, and every 12-year cycle has its own lessons. And I think that that's what the one that I've had to go through, which is I've just held on to this little tiny thought. This is, and, and we're in good company with this. This is Sister Gyanamata saying, I came to realize that I had to give up everything even those things that were mine by right that harmed no one. And you know, in just in that little phrase, you can hear so much, mine by right. You know, I've earned this, I've deserved it, why not? I get to have it. And that doesn't necessarily mean tragedy or loss. It, it doesn't mean that you have to lose anything, really. I mean, you might, but you don't have to. It's depend, but you have to lose it inside your own heart. You have to lose the illusion that there's room inside of me for all these little attachments and God. He won't mind. He won't mind. I remember one woman said to me once, I think God wants me to have nice things. And I thought, well, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> you know, it's like, why would he want you to have nice things? What, like, what possible reasoning? I mean, she had other thoughts that she was running, but just illusions. That, that it will work out without God. So, anyway, <clears throat> but then the, the, the part of that that you have to work with is that makes you more and more free. So far from becoming cynical and dark about that, which is how it sounds. It sounds just so tragic. Like, oh, all my illusions are gone and even the little things have to go away, and even those things that harm no one, I lose them all. I mean, it just sounds horrible. And many, much of the time, you can feel that way. But what it actually makes you, you see, is very, very free. Because you have no illusions. That's what Swami was like. He just, he wasn't afraid of anything. And because he wasn't afraid, he was completely free. He didn't have hopes, and he didn't have fears. I, mean, I, I told a story in my book, about watching him fall off the, um, the dais when he was speaking once. And just his chair was close to the edge. Actually, I realized, I, I read the story, it happened twice. Once he was in a, a solitary, solid chair like this, which had just been set a little too close to the edge. This was at the seclusion retreat. And he, he used to often, in the early years, he would sit down when he would speak. It was the Indian style where there would be the dais and the guru would sit cross-legged there and and so Swami often would sit like that, but in case he was sitting in a chair. And he was very enthusiastic, and the chair just tipped over backwards. But what the interesting thing is that Swami barely interrupted his sentence, and there was no, um, no visible sense of shock or alarm. He was just sitting up, and then he was rolling backwards, and then he stood up and finished his talk, and they put the chair in his place, and he sat down again with hardly a ripple. And on the other occasion, it was a line of teachers. Uh, it was one of these meeting of the ways thing, and they were all in rocking chairs, and he was on the edge. And he was, it wasn't very interesting to him. And 
everybody else was competing to talk and he didn't feel like competing to talk so he was just rocking in his chair and I was watching him and then he disappeared <laughs> I mean he was there and then he wasn't <laughs> and then he just put his chair back in and sat down again but no alarm no you know no outcry nothing and I, 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 I thought a lot I wrote, I wrote a story about it because how much you are in the present moment that you don't even expect your chair to stay there. Or when it shifts, you just move with it. You're not living in your hopes and fears, you're just moving. Every so often when something happens that should cause me to cry out and I don't cry out, I'm always really pleased with myself. You know, when, I, when you burn your hand or somebody startles you and you just take it. I always think, I, seriously, I always think that's good. You know, I, I'm not so caught up in the present moment I mean, I'm not set my expectation of the future. It just can be whatever it's going to be. I'm not so attached to the, a certain reality. These are all the little tiny ways in which we can actually watch our consciousness shift that actually matters so that when you get a cancer diagnosis or somebody has an automobile accident or, you know, you have a sudden change in your life, you don't have to take it so hard because you've been practicing all this time. And it's just like, okay, this is what we do next. Really? Okay, hope is also another really interesting one. This is a. I said hope is also really interesting. My name means hope, so I have to think about this one. Swami used to sing a, a Bengali song in which I, I can't I can't sing the phrase, but the phrase was Asha something, and the phrase was Asha hope hope will not be realized. And he used to always point out to me that that's what it said in the song, that hope will not be realized. And he was very sorry to tell me, but that was what the song said. (laughs) It was very mean of him, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it meant hopes will not be realized because um, during the break, someone was saying how they always had this thought in their mind that they would be happy when they got to there. Whatever there was, not clearly defined, but then my life will start. And then the realization came, which is the same one I had, which is, but I am the problem. And if as long as I take myself there, then what will happen that will be so different if I can't find it now? I mean, these are yogi from past lives thoughts. You don't have these thoughts unless you've, you don't have these thoughts as a child and as a young person unless you've gone pretty sophisticated in them in a previous life where you have begun to figure out that the entire issue is consciousness. You see, the reason this makes you happy in the end, this is where I was trying to get, why doesn't this make you depressed? Because it makes you so happy, because you realize that you are not dependent on this world. That in far from making you feel helpless and dependent and disappointed and so on, you realize, this, I don't have to, none of this matters that the only issue in the whole story is my consciousness. And, and the only thing that we have any influence over is my consciousness in relation to what happens to me. And that's the really, really good news, and that is the really, really bad news, because it's always in our hands, and it's always our decision. When you really finally grasp that, you become, it, it, it's, it's thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling because it is the sacred key of awakening. Into our hands have been delivered the sacred keys of awakening. Then comes the guru, then comes 
the philosophy, then comes the practice of Kriya, and you realize that it's right here in front of me. And no matter what happens, the incredible book by Viktor Frankl um, called Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a, an Austrian Jew, and he was arrested in, very early in the Nazi cycle. And at the age of 24, he was put into a concentration camp, and he was married, and his wife was taken, and his fam- relatives were taken in. Pretty much everybody died but him. So by the time he comes out, you know, he's not even 30, and already a whole incarnation has been wiped out. Everything. And he had to emigrate, and he became a psychiatrist, and he had a theory of psychology which he developed and became quite well known, which is... You can endure anything if you feel there's a reason for it. The search for meaning. If you can find meaning in your experience, then you can endure anything. And he watched people die and lose hope. And he realized that as soon as, the, as, soon as a person saw no meaning in what was happening, they would die soon after. But for him what happened was, as he lost everything, he realized that the, what he always had that no one could ever take away from him was his own inner consciousness. He wrote his book, not so much speaking of God, but you could feel God underneath it. I think he wrote it as a psychiatrist for that reason. But you could feel that what he discovered was a power much greater. There was no, there was no way he could have that power if he wasn't in relationship to a higher reality. But you say to yourself, and, and it's a horrific story that he tells. It's really a very hard story to read, except that it end so well, but um, you can see how he was born to have that experience. And even though it was tough, was it, was it even bad karma? Because it incredibly accelerated his understanding. Master said that about many people were in concentration camps because it was such a, a, an ideal spiritual opportunity for them. It was something not something karmically that they were forced into do, it was something karmically that they eagerly walked into because you get to test yourself in circumstances that you, you, you could never willingly take on. You know, I, I began to realize Swami's <clears throat> enthusiasm for dental procedures without Novocaine and his enjoyment of telling us all about it was partly because certainly I have great anxiety about physical pain, you know, and I have never gone to the dentist. I tried it once, and it was just have one tooth, very small, and it was just such a terrible experience, I'd never have done it again. I just can't. I can't bring myself to do it. But I can see what he's trying to say to us, because in the life that we live now, unless something happens, which does happen, we're not subject to, to great physical discomfort. It's just not the age we live in. We live very comfortably. Swamiji said one of the reasons St. Francis had to live in such an austere manner was he had to distinguish his life from everybody else's austere life because it wasn't a very comfortable time at all. And to do austerity, you had to move farther to the extreme. You know, in our lives are so comfortable, you don't even know where to start. You become a vegan. I mean, that's sort of like... That's, that's about the tapasya that you can do. <laughs> it's just money, food, everything, at least so far. It's all still here for us. But the mere thought of just walking into pain like that 
and, and testing your consciousness against such a challenge, it, it's very interesting. You know, every once in a while, every one of us will have a dream in which you come out like a shining star. And that was the dream that I had when I was about to be, um, have my head chopped off. And I was on a, I always want to say that it was here because it felt like it was on an altar, but it wasn't here. It was just on a big stage in my dream. But it, it, it feels like it was here in this room. And, you know, I just, it was a, it was a, a, a cartoon, one of those hatchets, you know, those sort of medieval hatchets. There's a cartoon where they have a lot of them. And my friend had one of those, and there was a chopping block, and he told me that, you know, he was just going to have to cut my head off, and he was sort of sorry, but it had to be done. And I told him, don't worry about it, I recognize that it has to be done. It was all very, just, you know, very civilized. I just had to have my head chopped off, that's what was going to happen, and he was the one who got to do it. So here we are, and it's fine, we, you know, won't have any effect on our friendship. <laughs> and... So finally it was time, and I, I, I literally put my head down like that. And just at the second when I put my head down, I thought, oh, this might hurt. You know, and there was just this, like, sudden anxiety, which was the first time in the dream there was any anxiety. And then I remembered that when the soul knows the body is finished, it uh, withdraws before the moment of impact. Because why would you... Yes, I mean, many people who are in car accidents and things like that, they tell you that just before the cars hit, they were gone. And they watch the impact. They don't experience it. Because the body says, I don't need to be here. And so just at that moment, I realized that. So as I thought that in my dream, I exited. And I just, I went, started going up like that. And then I saw this big empty stage with my body and my friend and his battle axe getting ready. I never really saw my head getting chopped off, but that was what was happening. Just like it goes, I started shooting out of it. But then in the dream, I looked down and I said, Bye-bye, Asha, just like that. And then I woke up and I was so happy. I thought, isn't that wonderful? You know, just, it was just a dream. But I thought, oh my, I hope that when my soul exits from the body, it just looks back and says, it was a great ride, girl. Bye-bye. You know, now we're done. And I, I do think of that a lot. You know, why would we not feel that way? And can we just conjure that up? And why wait until the battle axe is going to cut our head off if we're going to feel that way eventually? And I, I've pondered so much the issue of time in this respect because I spoke of, you know, my great sadness when I was 24, 25, you know, things that happened then that made me so sad at the time. And they can still, I can still feel it, but it's so different. So what's the difference between that and yesterday? We just like, where, where, how, why do we need time? And does time just mean that we get stupid or do we actually get better? Do you know? Is it just that we get distance and therefore the impact on us is still exactly the same? It's just not so fresh? In, in the land of golden sunshine, there's this poetic line where she's remembering this land of golden sunshine, the, the girl, Lisa, who's going to be spirited off to this beautiful kingdom. And she says, I've known it always, but it's, I can't remember the poetry exactly, but the impression was dimmed by more recent memories. 
And so she's sort of seeing it through the forest of more recent memories, but it's always back there. Now this is a beautiful thing, where she's remembering her divine self, but the material world has obscured it a little. But I sometimes worry that the pains that I've had, this life, previous lives, have only diminished because more other impressions are stronger, but that, that the freedom is an illusion. And I suppose this is what the Jivan Mukta has to go through. I'm, I'm just thinking about this. This is where Swami talks about you, you've realized yourself in God, but there's still the memory of yourself in all these incarnations. I mean, these are things I don't understand, but I've heard him say. And you have to go through those incarnations and realize that it was God who was the doer all the way through. Like, what are you going through? And partly, it must be the reason those would hold you is because of nostalgia, regret, hopes, and fears, wouldn't it? I mean, otherwise, why would it matter? I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. But this is, again, where, you know, my intention in life for, for a long time is always to try to be as current as possible. I don't, I don't, if somebody calls and wants to talk to me, I say, how about this afternoon? I mean, if it's at all possible. It's just like, in this, if, I've, if I recognize a mistake, I try to fix it, you know, a minute after I recognize it, if at all possible. I just don't like any of it to, to build up. I mean, of course, there's a tremendous amount that I don't have the freedom to erase that quickly. But nonetheless, one wants to always at least be working with Kriya, of course, with God, remembrance, but just with self-discipline, not indulging, not repeating. But nonetheless, it's still, it's always going on. Hopes and fears nostalgias and regrets keep us out of experiencing the present bliss. Well, that's a lot. Any comments or thoughts or questions? I'm, I'm not sure why it happened just now, but it, it seems to me that the, the truth that joy is not the way, joy is a solution, um, just came into mind big time, as you said that. Well, you know, in the midst of every experience that I've been with with Swami, with very few exceptions, he could always say something humorous and laugh. I, I mean, and when there were times when things gripped him so hard that there was no humor and there was no laughter, it would really stand out. You know, and I, I remember times when that did happen, but it would really stand out. Because most of the time, even when it was horrible, he was able to remember enough of present bliss that he would make a joke or we would laugh. And there was a movie called My Cousin Vinny, which was about a crazy judge and a lawyer and a trial and so on. It was a very funny movie. It had a good bit of bad language in it, but we just ignored it. So when we had 12 years of litigation, sometimes when we'd have really, really bad days in court, we'd all say, let's watch My Cousin Vinny. And we all knew the movie so well that we could say the dialogue and we would laugh in anticipation of the lines, but it always cheered us up. <laughs> just because, you know, it could be worse. Our situation was so, in, at times, it felt just like that. It felt just like a, a nightmare sort of black comedy. 
But we could laugh. We just constantly, we, we, often, we often remarked how much we were able to laugh in the middle of such hard circumstances because you would go back to that present bliss. I think that really is actually the right word for it. Because the present bliss was always there no matter what was happening. And with Swami, and that's, that's where what I was starting to say, really, no matter how bad it is, it is all about freedom. It's either leading to freedom or it is freedom because it's just your opportunity to test yourself against a really hard surface and find out whether you can make it or not. And as Swami said to me once when I had to face a really, really, uh, face a, a, fa- a fault in myself that I thought was gone, he said, well, you weren't putting out any energy to overcome it because you thought it was gone. Now you know it's not. Isn't that good news? <laughs> now you can work on it. Uh huh. Took me a little while to get my head around that, but the fact of the matter was, it's true. So you can always take whatever happens and say, "Oh well, look, I have a long ways to go. I thought I was freer than I am, and now I discover that I have all this work to do. And because I was living in an illusion, I wasn't really working on it. A lot of times, you see, people work on the wrong thing because they don't know what is really holding them back. And so they're working over here when the actual issue is here and then something cracks you and you discover that you have faults that you didn't know you had, which it, it can be depressing. And he tried to tell me that it's liberating because now you know uh, where the shoe is actually pinching and put the moleskin in the right spot. <laughs> yeah. Um, the belief that joy is always present, that you are joy, that mm-hmm. turns into the faith gradually that joy is always present, is an extremely valuable thing to nurture. It's exactly what Master said, present bliss. If you can live in the present bliss, nostalgia, regret, hope, fear. So just you just watch it because that's what keeps us out of the present and when we're out of the present we can't find that. Okay, I think that'll be enough for tonight. So, we did one, two, nine, four, and that was it. Okay.